Great to have you guys here. Thanks for joining us for this series on Proof of God. We've been having a lot of fun with this. And last week, you know, we began and, and uh, this week I'm going to continue. And I got to tell you, you got to pray for your pastor because I feel like my mind is, is just taking in too much information here. It's crazy. All the research for this. But what I'm finding is simply amazing that there is so much proof scientifically that there is a God. Today I want to tackle something that, that is, and I believe, somewhat of a religion today. And that is the theory of evolution. And so if you've got your notes, pull those out, because I believe that now it's become more dogma than fact than ever. Because remember that when Darwin wrote his book on the theory of evolution, that was over 150 years ago. Just think about that for a second. When he wrote his book, he was literally traveling by horse and carriage when he wrote that. And yet we're supposed to believe that with all the scientific advancements that somehow that book has still remained intact when the truth is, is that scientific advancements are actually proving that that book was wrong, that this theory was not true. And instead we have to go back 2000 more years to find a book that it accurately depicts, which is the Bible. And so if you've got your notes, pull those out if you would. And uh, if you are from the scientific community, I wanna say thank you for coming. Thank you for proving that you truly have an open mind, that you're open to listening to this. So many people in the science community don't even wanna hear this. And so that's how you know when someone has a religion rather than a scientific fact, when they won't even listen to the other side or another viewpoint. So I'm excited to be sharing with you today about this. And uh, I use a lot of different references and I wanna to apologize to those of you today that were expecting to have a, a sermon full of verses because today I'm only gonna use one verse at the end of the entire thing because I wanna prove through science not through the Bible, that evolution is not true, because some people, as crazy as this may sound to many of us, don't believe the Bible. And so I want to prove to you through science that there is no longer a reason to believe in evolution. And so pull out your notes if you want to give you a lot of things. I wrote, wrote a lot of stuff down, so I'm going to move pretty quick through this. So forgive me if this seems a bit heady, but there's no way around that if I'm going to give you the science on this. So first of all, let's say our mission statement together. What are we here to do as a church? We're here to take as many people to heaven as we can before we die, period. That's what we're all about here at Church Unlimited again. So thanks for being a part. And that's exactly why we're doing this series is because oftentimes people say, well, I'm not into God because instead I believe in science. And so they, they use this as a crutch or as an excuse to not actually look at the claims of God and look at the Bible and ask the question, is this real? Did this really happen? Is this accurate? And so today we're going to go ahead and debunk evolution. And honestly, it's a little complicated, but it's actually not that hard because the evidence is pretty strong. So let's jump right in. There are five ways to debunk evolution that have been proven now for years. And uh, this, every time they do another research study, it even proves it more uh, that evolution is not really the way it works. So uh, here's the thing about evolution. First thing you need to know is this. Genetic limits and cyclical change prove that evolution doesn't work. Genetic limits and cyclical change. Let me just explain. If I were to have a broom up here and if I were sweeping, eventually if I swept long enough, I would get a callus on my thumb, right? A callus on my thumb, they would say that is evidence of evolution. My body is evolving, right? Because I'm using a broom. How many of you guys get calluses when you sweep too? Anyone else, if you sweep too long? No one in here does? I can't believe this, I'm the only one, wow. Okay, there's some other hands. Okay, I'm like, wow, maybe I'm the only lazy one that doesn't sweep enough, right, to actually have a developed callus there. But the truth is I get, I get a little callus there or whatever you happen to do, if you lift weights a lot, you can get callus on your hands, whatever it is. The point is, is that you build up callus over time that they say that's a sign of evolution. Your body is evolving. If you go outside and get a tan, what's that? That's your skin evolving right? Because of the sun. And so that's what they, they say that that proves evolution exists. But actually, here's what that really means. Darwinists say that microevolution within types, that means your body evolving, proves that macroevolution occurred. 
yet there is no observable evidence of directional change that leads to a new species. For example, dog breeders through trial and error can develop bigger, smaller dogs, etc. yet they have never taken two dogs and made a cat. Breeders can't jump species guided by their intelligence, and we are supposed to believe that species evolved into new species by accident. They can't even do it when they're trying, and we're supposed to believe that new species came along by accident. That's just a little ridiculous. I mean, really, what they're trying to make us believe is if I swept long enough and then I have a family who always sweeps, then eventually my arm would just shift to a broom. <laughs> then it would just become a broom because that's what I would need. And so now I would have a broom for an arm. Now, my wife would love that, but that's not what has happened. And so the reality is, is that even though we do see some minor changes within a species, Here's the problem with that. When they say, oh, that means that, that the changes continued and continued until we went from a tadpole to a frog to a reptile to a mammal to a, a, an ape to a man. That sounds really great in theory. It's just not been proven in any experimentation. There's literally no experimentation, not a single one, of jumping from one species to another. There's absolutely lots of times when they tried to breed two different uh, you know, types of animals inside a species and create something, but that's where the breakdown begins. It just never turns into another species. So genetic limits and cyclical change. Cyclical change means this, because this is, this is important. They said, you know what, if, if Darwin's theory is correct, then that means we constantly are getting better, right? Survival of the fittest. So why doesn't every man in here look like Dwayne The Rock Johnson by now? Right? Shouldn't we all just be bigger and stronger nonstop, right? And so my, uh, my wife's father, his name's Tom, he's a pretty big guy. And so he's a good-looking guy, he's real strong, and uh, he, he's about 6'2". And then my wife comes along, that, you know, um, him and his wife gave, gave birth to Jessica, and, and she's not that tall. She's not short, but she's not as tall for a girl as, say, her, her dad would be, and you would expect that she may be, right? So the, the height went from a little tall to kind of normal, and then all of a sudden, Jessica and I get married. We have babies. And then Tom's grandson, my son, Cole, looks a lot like him. And now he's about 6'1", and he's probably going to be 6'2 or 6'3", like his grandfather. He didn't get that from me. I'm six foot, and I'm hardly that. I'm holding on. The other day, I went, and they, they measured me. They said 5'11". I was like, you are not riding 5'11 down. <laughs> How many men know what I'm talking about? I was like, I used to be six foot, and I know you're supposed to shrink as you get older. Uh-uh, you're putting six foot with the afro. I'm fine. <laughs> the point is, is that, right, I'm not as tall, right? I mean, it should have been from generation to generation getting taller and taller, bigger, stronger, faster, whatever, right? But the reality is, is even though we said, well, look at man, man is so much faster. There's, there's evidence that every Olympic, there's another record broken. But there's lots of examples of men who are sitting in the stands that can't run at all. So not every man is getting faster, right? So clearly everyone's not getting better and, and bigger and this and that. Otherwise, wouldn't man eventually now be something else? Something greater and bigger and better and all that? So this is where the breakdown happens. Genetic limits and cyclical changes. It's not directional change. There's absolutely change, but it's in all directions. Sometimes better, sometimes worse, depending upon what you believe is better or worse. Some, you, some of you might even not even care about height and think that's not better. I understand that. But the point is, is that there's changes, but they're not directional. They're not constantly going in one direction. And so that is a reality of genetic limits. Number two, the fossil record supports instant creation. I believe this is one of the biggest evidences, by the way, that there is a God. The fossil record supports instant creation. Darwin um, truly believed that there should be fossils everywhere of these supposed transitional beings between a reptile, a mammal, and a mammal, and an ape, and an ape, and a man. There, there, there should be 
bones that match this everywhere, and they just, they're just not there. They're, just, they're not found in the fossil record. The fossil record goes directly against the evolution theory of gradualism, instead supports instant creation. This is from Stephen Jay Gould from Harvard. Uh, he is a paleontologist and an evolutionist, and this is what he said. So he's an evolutionist. He believes in evolution, but unfortunately, his, his uh, scientific evidence is proving opposite of what he believes. This is what he said. The history of most fossil species includes two features particularly inconsistent with gradualism. Number one, stasis. Stasis just means things don't change that much. Most species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on Earth. They appear in the fossil record looking in much the same as when they disappear. Morphological change, morphological just means it morphs like slowly morphing into something else, right? Like we see in the movies. We just don't see that, you know, under the microscope. Morphological change is usually limited and directionless. Also, sudden appearance. In any local area, a species does not arise gradually by the steady transformation of its ancestors. It appears all at once and fully formed. Guys, that's proof for a God. If we have animals all at once fully formed and we don't have these transitional beings that supposedly exist, that means someone started it up all at once. That sounds like the God of Genesis to me. And this is being discovered at Harvard University, not exactly a Christian institution. And so number two, the fossil record supports instant creation. Number three, kind of leans right into number two, non-viability. That's a big word that just means that it can't live, it can't survive. Non-viability of transitional forms and a lack of fossil records of these forms. Non-viable means that, you know, Darwin's theory said it was all about survival of the fittest. And so if it really is survival of the fittest, right? I mean, that, that leads to, to you to ask the question then, what about these transitional supposed beings? How could they survive if they were in transition? Wouldn't they have been eaten or killed or wouldn't have made it, right? And so I'm gonna show you a picture of a transitional form that they believe existed, but there's actually, there's actually no <laughs> fossil record of this, but can you put that on the screen real quick? There you go. And so this is what you call a flaposaurus, if it existed at all. They're just thinking it may have existed because they're trying to say, look, look, it's got the reptile tail and reptile body, but then look, it's got wings. Here's the problem with this. Survival of the fittest says that the only animals that survived would have had to have fought off other animals. So, okay, think about this. So you got reptilian skin, which is tough and strong. You need that if you're gonna be on the ground fighting with another reptile, right? The problem is they also have little bitty wings and everybody knows if you've ever held a bird, they're very fragile. You could easily rip it apart. It'd be disgusting to do it, but you could. And so just think about that. If an animal wants to eat you, forget going for the reptile skin, go for the wings. So the reason birds survive is because they fly off. They're so light. They don't have skin that weighs them down like that. The problem with that is if they ever have a problem with their wing and they end up on the ground, guess what? They're easy prey at that point, aren't they? Most birds that get eaten, right, by another animal, it's because something happened to their wing, they can't fly, and now they're easy prey because that's how they escape. So here that animal is something that it, it can't fly off. You could easily, if you're another reptile, take a bite off of that arm and it would easily, ble this, this animal would bleed out. And I'm trying to be gross and trying to explain the survival of the fittest. So it's not strong enough to fight anything on the ground and it's not, it doesn't have big enough wings to fly off. This wouldn't survive because it's in transition. And so this is a great example that is non-viable. It wouldn't be able to make it. Non-viability of transitional forms. And also this exists on paper because somebody drew it. We can't find any evidence of this kind of creature. There's just no bones that match this. And so it just, in other words, someone created this because they have to have it to be able to get to the transition of a mammal or to a bird. So they, they just, essentially, I'm trying to be nice here, they made it up. There's no evidence of this, is what's actually going on. 
And so two other things about that. They have no viable mechanism for getting reptiles to birds. Rept uh, mechanism just means, uh, how does this functionally work? How do you get a reptile to turn into a bird? There's, just, there's no scientific evidence of that actually happening. Also, even if the mechanism existed, the transitional forms would be unlikely to survive, just like we just talked about. Now, by the way, next week I'm talking about the age of the earth and dinosaurs. Forgive me, I tried to get it in this week and I just had too much content to do that. So next week we're going to talk about the age of the earth and also dinosaurs. If you're wondering, like, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? Actually, a lot. It says a lot about dinosaurs in the book of Job. If you'd like to look at it yourself, you can. But we're going to talk about that next week and, and we're going to learn about that. We're also going to talk about the biblical flood uh, briefly as well and how scientifically that's been proven to be the case that there is a flood. Uh, and so we'll talk about that as well. So the next one I think is one of my favorites, and this is about a common genetic code. So people say a common genetic code could prove a common ancestor like that we all came from apes. So here's what I believe that really means. So let me just give you an example. What they're trying to say is when you look at the common genetic code that we all have DNA in us, right? Apes have DNA, mice have DNA, we have DNA. Oh, we all must be from the same common ancestor. Therefore, that somehow proves evolution. Well, let me just explain what they're trying to say. You ever seen the picture, right? The picture, the famous picture where they take a tadpole and they have it develop all the way up to a dog or to a cat or whatever, and all the way to, a, to an ape and into a man, to a monkey, to an ape, to a man. How many of you guys have seen that picture, right? It's on the back of some people's cars, right? Yeah. It's a common thing if they, if they believe in it. I always love when people put their religion on the back of their car. And so, so they have that, 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 that scaling up to a man. But to me, that's the equivalent of this. Look, check it out. I've got measuring cups. Oh, these are so nice. And then you go through a frying pan. You go to a larger frying pan. Eventually, you get to a saucepan, right? And then you get to a pot. And then eventually, you get to a skillet. And then ultimately, you get to this steam pot, or as we like to say in South Texas, a tamale maker, whatever you'd like to call it. <laughs> right? And so this is what this looks like to us, right? Because that's what we use it for. So, so what, what would, wouldn't it be ridiculous if you said, oh, look, Look at the metal on this and the color. It matches the color of, of the pans and the pots all the way down to the measuring cup. And it's the same design, the same screws are on it and the same type of material. Clearly this steam pot evolved from the measuring cup. Maybe we should step back and realize maybe it's not a common ancestor. Maybe it's a common creator that made them all to match their collection. So I believe it's a common God not, a, not that we all came. I mean, when you, when you drive along and you see a, a Toyota Land Cruiser, if you're like me, I always say, nice car. And then after that, I don't say, wow, that must come from the Corolla. It must have evolved. <laughs> it's got the same logo. It's got a lot of the same design. And you say, no, no, that just means it all came from Toyota. It doesn't mean it evolved from a Corolla. It means that instead that the same manufacturer made small ones and large ones have got the same basic design. That's what that actually means. And so... Number four, a common genetic code could prove a common ancestor that we all came from apes theory, or it could simply prove a common creator that he made man and apes. Also, the common genetic code does not exist on the molecular level. This is, I believe, the coup de grace. This is, I believe, the number one evidence that literally puts the last nail in the coffin on Darwin. That says there's just no way it's the molecular level that Darwin never could get into more in a moment on that. But first of all, let me tell you a couple of facts that people like to use to say, well, this proves that there's evolution. You ever heard this? Well, 85 to 95% of apes' DNA matches humans. So therefore, right, we must be from apes, right? Now, ladies, I know that you feel like, feel like you have a lot of evidence that your husband's from an ape, but that's a whole different kind of evidence. <laughs> but the truth is, is that we like to argue that, oh, well, we must come from apes because 85% of our DNA is similar to 
on apes' DNA. But did you know, here's the problem with that. Did you know that 90% of mice' DNA matches humans too? That doesn't make sense. In fact, Geisler and Turek in their book, I Don't Have the Faith to Be an Atheist, a great book, by the way. I'm relying heavily on that book today. They said, if mice genetically are as close to humans as apes, this will greatly complicate any Darwinian explanation. Basically saying that, see, if you look at the trail of it, let me show you a picture real quick. Can we show just a, a quick picture of the, the mice and the apes? There we go. So look, you start off with this amoeba and you eventually gradually get to, you know, you, you go from fish to eventually a mouse supposedly, and then you keep going up to other mammals and you eventually get to a, a monkey, then an ape, then man, right? This is what they're trying to sell us on. But if the, if the ape and the man are close in DNA, but the mouse is just as close to the DNA, that's a problem. They're supposed to be gradually getting closer but yeah, this is just as close. So what we're really learning is that we actually don't have a transition in the DNA. What we have is the same God using the same building blocks to build everything. That's what we actually have going on here. Does that make sense? And so this is where uh, people kind of went off the reservation thinking there was no God because, well, we must be you know, getting better and better and closer and closer to becoming man, and that's just not the truth. Actually, mouse, m mice are actually closer to a man whenever you say, are you a man or a mouse? Hey, you're pretty close. You know, that's a... There's some accuracies there. So the, the truth is, is that we, we are similar in our DNA structure. And so that's something we have to face. And so check out what Geisler and Turk said about this. If all species share a common ancestor, we should expect to find protein sequences. This is what's inside DNA. So by the way, they, they basically broke open the living cell and they found DNA. Then they broke open the DNA and they found protein inside of it. I don't know if you know this, the basic building block we used to say is the living cell. No, we've gotten smaller now, it's the DNA. Oh, no, 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 we've gotten smaller now, it's the protein. It's crazy what we can do now do in science to see inside the living cell. So inside the DNA. Uh, they, they say, let me go, go back. If all species share a common ancestor, we should expect to find protein sequences inside the DNA that are transitional from, say, fish to amphibian, from reptile to mammal. But that is not what we find at all. Instead, the basic types of molecularly are molecularly isolated from one another. On a molecular level, molecules inside your DNA, they, they are the same basic four components but they're in totally different orders and there's no sequence that matches. Did you know that? So yes, we all have DNA in this, but inside that DNA, it is completely different than what in the, when it comes to the order from what is in an ape to what's in a mouse, what's in a fish. It's totally different. There are nothing, nothing alike. Michael Denton, the scientist, said this about this. He wrote a book called Evolution of Theory and Crisis. He wrote this, by the way, in the 80s, they started to discover this. He said, at a molecular level, there is no trace of evolutionary transition from fish to amphibian to reptile to mammal. So amphibian, always traditionally considered intermediate between fish and other terrestrial vertebrae, are in molecular terms as far from fish as from any other group of reptiles or mammals. To those well acquainted with the traditional picture of vertebrae evolution, the result is truly astonishing. He's basically saying that it just blows it up. It doesn't match. So it doesn't fit evolution at all after all. And so now, when they got inside the cell, this is what really rocked the boat of every evolutionist is when they began to get inside the cell. And this was really the 90s that this began into the 2000s all the way up to today. And so they now have uh, the blockchains and the DNA mapped of an entire human body, which took literally, I think, a couple of decades to do that because we're that detailed. And so let me just tell you, I believe that the most powerful evidence that there is a God is found in the last point here, and it's called irreducible complexity. Would you write that down? Irreducible complexity. You can't reduce it, you can't simplify it, we're just simply complex beings. Here's what that means. In 1859, Darwin wrote, that's when he wrote his book, by the way, very cutting edge, 1859. 
He wrote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Well, now that's unproven. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Darwin never could see into the human cell. He called it a black box, a mysterious little part of life that no one could see into. Molecular biology has single-handedly destroyed the concept of simplicity for change's sake, meaning that it has to stay simple for it to change. It's not simple. Once they got inside the living cell, they realized this is incredibly more complex. Darwin, another, another research that Darwin made, he actually, Darwin actually said he thought that when you broke up in the cell, it would just be like a little bit jelly donut, just a bunch of gushy, smushy stuff, that's it. He had no idea the complexity of the cell. Otherwise, how can cells multiply? How can they fight off disease? How would they be able to do those things if they were just simply just jelly? If it was just mush that we were made out of? It's not as incredibly complex. So let me break this down. I'm going to try to explain something that's very complicated pretty quick here. DNA's genetic alphabet consists of four letters, A, T, C, and G. Well, within each human cell, there are 3,000 million pairs of those letters. Take 3,000, multiply it by a million, and that's how many pairs of A, T, C, and G you have that come together to make one living cell. And oh, did I mention that half of those are left hand, half of those are right hand, they have to match up perfectly? But remember folks, all this happened by accident. It's a total accident that you have even one cell in your body, according to Darwin theory. And yet, you know how many cells you have in your body, by the way? They finally figured out a count on this. It keeps going up, by the way. I'm sure it'll go up next year again. Right now, the current count that they have in your body is 37.2 trillion. But you're an accident. It just happened to come together. That's what we're supposed to believe here. It's literal insanity to believe this. And they basically found out that the living cell, the human cell, is basically like a little machine. It's like a little engine inside of you that keeps you going. In fact, if you ask anyone who has cancer, they have certain cells that need to fight off other cells, don't they? Because they know that the, on the cellular level is where the battle begins. And so how can a cell that's supposed to have no machinery fight off anything? Apparently, that little cell's got a brain in it. It knows what it's doing. It has design features to it that you would expect of a God who made us, if you believe that. If you don't believe that, then you're stuck with a really hard question. How can this be an accident? How is this possibly an accident? And by the way, this is almost like an engine. In fact, the problem with me using the engine illustration is it's far less complicated than a cell. A human living cell is incredibly detailed, far more than any engine you've ever driven around in a car. You take the highest level engine you could possibly find, let Tesla build it, let Ferrari build it, you name who you'd like to build, let NASA build it. It's far less complicated than all the parts and pieces that go into one living cell. Did you know that? But yet that's supposed to be an accident. We look at a Tesla engine and call Elon Musk a genius. He may be a mad genius, but he's a genius. We look at what NASA's built and we certainly say that's genius. But genius requires a designer. But yet we are supposed to have a far more complicated thing called the living cell in us. We have 37.2 trillion of them all working together to make us function. And yet that wasn't built by a genius. That was built on accident. This is just absurd. What they're asking us to believe is literally crazy. Let me, let me explain it this way. Darwinists can't explain the source of the materials to make an engine 
of the living cell, in other words, much less how any irreducible complex engine can, came to be in the first place, nor can they demonstrate the unintelligent process by which any engine has evolved into the space shuttle <laughs> while providing propulsion at every intermediate step. Let me just explain this. I'm going to put some engines on the screen for real quick for you. So here we have an engine. This is a four-cylinder engine that can be found in any Honda, Toyota, you pick your car, small Chevy. There you go. It's four-cylinder. We're supposed to believe, this is what we're taught, through evolutionary theory, that this little four-cylinder turned into a six-cylinder. Can you show me that? There's a six-cylinder there. That just morphed into that. On its own, no one helped it. Do I have any mechanics in the room? What are the chances of you converting a four-cylinder into a six-cylinder? Probably not going to happen, right? It's pretty much impossible. Then you have a six-cylinder. Let's keep going. That turns into an eight-cylinder. Wow, look at there. Boom, an F-150 motor, just like that. And now let's keep going. So give enough time, it eventually turns into a tractor motor. Or how about a jet motor, right? It just keeps on going. Somehow the little, that little four-cylinder turns into that. Just give it enough time. <laughs> and it'll accidentally happen. Oh, I forgot to mention one thing about how these engines are supposed to evolve. Uh, by the way, anyone who works on cars, what's the first thing you do when you work on a car? You pull it under a tree and you turn it off. Or you pull it in the garage and you turn it off. Or you pop the hood and you turn it off to work on it. Here's the problem. Scientists have to tell us this, that actually this little engine that evolved from a four-cylinder to an eight-cylinder, from a tadpole to a man, actually the whole time the engine was being developed, it was running the whole time. So you have to work on the engine while it's running. Oh, and by the way, you can't work on it because that, that involves a human or, or a mind or a designer, someone outside the engine, so it just has to accidentally. So we'll just throw enough car parts around it, give enough time, it'll just eventually work. This is what we're asked to believe. This is insanity at best. And now that we know the living cell, which Darwin did not know, is so incredibly complex. It's irreducibly complex. It forces us to ask the question, is there really a God who built all this? Is there really a designer who made all of this happen? Maybe you're forced with a big question today that you didn't think you'd come hear any kind of evidence that was actually true. Maybe you thought I was just going to spout off religious dogma. You didn't know that every bit of the evidence I have is from science proving that there is a God. Please check out this video. I didn't grow up with a Christian faith. My family went to church when I was little, and so I knew about God. Growing up in my home, I had some really negative examples of who Christians were and who the church was. My father wasn't really a good man. He hurt our family. And growing up, he was a big figure in the church that we went to. And so it didn't make a lot of sense to me to see him playing a part at church. And so that made me distrust the God that created the church. So I really didn't believe that he was good. And then eventually I didn't even believe he existed. From an early age, I loved learning about how the things around me worked. And so as I grew up, I loved finding any opportunity I could to learn about it. I started doing research when I was in high school at a lab at Vanderbilt University. So when it came time to look for colleges, I knew I wanted to go there and study science. My first semester in college was extremely rough. All the things that had happened in my life leading up to college and even poor relationships that I was in had just left me devastated. And so in college, I just spiraled downward. Even though I was exhausted and just completely distraught, 
I still love science. And our professor was teaching us about proteins. My professor wrote an equation on the board. It was called the Michaelis-Minton equation. But I just remember looking at that. It was like a wave of realization that came over me when I realized that it had to be designed. There was no other way that all of these little tiny microscopic pieces could come together and make a working cell. And so I sat there, I started thinking about everything I had learned in biology, about humans, about cells, about animals, and the world, and the solar system. And I just realized that it all fit together perfectly, and that couldn't be by chance. I even sat there and did some probability on my paper, trying to figure out what are the odds of this all coming together by itself. And it was such low odds that I realized it would take as much faith to believe in those odds as to believe in a God. And so I realized that there had to be a God. I spent months reading through the Bible, attending a college ministry on campus to learn about Him. And I learned who Christians really were and what they believed, what it looked like to live a genuine Christian life. And the more I learned about God and the more I learned about science, everything just came together finally and I did accept Christ as my Savior. I'm extremely grateful for the fact that the Lord has given me the opportunity to share this unique part of my story with His people. Amazing. So Amanda was studying molecular and cellular biology and that's her degree from Vanderbilt University, one of the top schools in our nation. And she couldn't help but but stumble across the fact that there is a God. So what was her hang-up? Was her hang-up science? No. Her hang-up is a lot, a lot of us. She used science to cover up her real hang-up was that if there is a God, how can a loving God let me have a father like this? Maybe that's you today. Maybe you say, you know, honestly, I've used the science thing, but it's not really that I don't believe in God as much as I am that I'm, I'm mad at God if he exists. How could a God of love let this happen to me? How could a God of love let me be abused? How could a God of love, you know, let someone die that I care for greatly? So maybe your issue isn't science at all. Maybe your issue is what her issue was. Science was just tripping her up a little bit. But the truth is, is that she had a hard time believing that someone who claimed to love God could treat someone like this. If that's you today, I want to just say, for what's happened to you, I'm truly sorry. I, I mean that. You've been, if you've been devastated by someone's hurt that claimed to love God, of course that would trip you up. But please don't let that person who hurt you keep you from a God who loves you. God loves you so much. Maybe what convinces you today is the science, or maybe what convinces you today is the truth of God's love for you. Either way, we both end up at the same cross, needing a God who loves us. A couple of the things I just want to mention here, just want to throw in uh, before we look at some scripture. You know, I think it's pretty amazing when we find out that we basically all have a common creator. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because if that's the case, then maybe we need to get over all of our differences a little bit. You know, it's funny, in today's culture, I feel like the news really wants us to all fight each other. I don't know if you guys have noticed that yet, but it just seems like they're always trying to pit blacks against whites, Hispanics against blacks, men against women. You just pick your color or, you know, your gender identity or whatever you like, and guess what? They're, they want us all to fight. I don't know what, they, I, I feel like they're not gonna be happy until there's a civil war. But the truth is, is that for all the differences that we have between us, we have a lot more in common because we all bleed red. And we were all made by a God who loves every one of us. And if that's the truth, then maybe we should learn to, as the Bible says in John 13, love one another. It doesn't say you have to fully understand one another. You just have to love one another. 
God wants us to learn to love each other. We do have a common creator. You know, uh, one last thing from science. There's a guy named Richard Dawkins. Maybe you've heard of him. He's a pretty smart guy, supposedly. And uh, he, he's a, just a, a genius. He wrote a book called The God Delusion, which should tell you his bias right there. So he believes that if you believe in a God, that it's literally a delusion in your mind. And so they asked Richard Dawkins how life actually began. And they wanted to know, Mr. Smarty Pants, how did life begin? And in an interview that they captured on a movie called Expelled, by the way, I highly recommend you, you get this movie. You can't find it on Netflix. You can't find it on the Apple store. You know why? Surprise, surprise. They don't carry it. I wonder why. I wonder if there's a little bias going on there. You have to go find it online somewhere. But Expelled is a powerful movie. Uh, the guy who hosts the movie's name is Ben Stein. Ben asked Stephen Hawking, who wrote the, the God Delusion, well, if you can't, if science doesn't prove where life began, you know, did it or did it not? Where did life begin? How did it begin? Like, what's your scientific theory for that? And you know what he actually said with a straight face? He said, I believe in a theory called panspermia. Really bad name, I know, but guess what it means? It means I believe that life probably came from other life forms from other planets. Oh, Superman brought life here. Oh, I was unaware of that. Thor did it. So now we have a guy who's supposed to be the smartest guy in the room telling us that life began from some other UFO that brought life to us since they can't find it on Earth. Didn't you just transfer the problem of how life began to another planet? I and mean, just by moving the zip code doesn't mean you solved anything. And this is supposed to be the smartest guy in the room. But they all come down to this one issue. Never ever has it happened that we have seen non-living things create living things. It hasn't happened in any scientific classroom or lab or study ever in the history of science. Because life has to come from other life. And the question then that's begged to be answered is, then who began all that? I believe you can find it in Psalms 139. It says this. For you, were create, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. There is a God who made it all and he loves you and he cares for you, and he wants you to know him. Would you bow your heads with me, every head bowed, every eye closed, and we just take a moment to pray today. Maybe for you today, this is the first time you've ever actually bowed your head in church. Maybe the evidence is shocking to you. Maybe for you, you're already a Christ follower, and you say, man, I just love knowing that I can stand that much stronger in my faith today. Praise God. Maybe for you today, I just armed you with some evidence that the next time a family member or a friend tries to throw the science stuff in your face, you can say, hold up, hold up. Are you sure about that? Let's talk about that. You can pull out some notes that you save about what you've discovered. If you don't trust any of this, I've said, please go do the research yourself. I, I, I beg you to do that. You'll become stronger in your faith than ever. Because all I did was discover what scientists all over America and really the world are, are discovering. Maybe today your struggle with your head bowed, your eyes closed is to say, man, am I actually gonna cross the line here? Maybe for you, you're having to leave a belief system. You never thought about evolution as a belief system, but if it's really hard for you to leave it, then that means that it, it, what's keeping you is not evidence. What's keeping you is that, what are my family and my friends gonna think? What are they gonna say? I'm gonna appear dumb because that's what many people, not everyone, but many people in the scientific community wanna make you feel dumb for believing in your faith. But now, 
the very science they tried to tell us proved there wasn't God proved that there is a God. So now you're left with the question, what will I do with this today? Am I ready to cross the line? Am I ready to come over and recognize that there is a God who loves me? God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you, to pay the price for your sins. He died and he rose again. This is not a scientific fact. This is a historical fact. It really happened. There's lots of evidence to support this. I've done a whole sermon series on that. Don't have time to go into it today. But suffice it to say, over 500 people saw Jesus die and raise again to life. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can receive the fact that he rose again and the spiritual truth that he loves you right now by praying a very simple prayer. Would you pray this prayer with me? You can say, Dear Jesus, I realize I need you. I believe you died for me, and I believe you rose again. I ask you to come into my heart, be my Lord, be my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. In your name we pray. Amen. Isn't God good? His word is so true.